Hello and welcome to Inside Human Trafficking in Canada, a podcast focused on ending trafficking and upholding children's rights. My name is Dr. Carly Sofosnick Evans, and I'm a human rights advocate based in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm recording this podcast on Treaty One territory in Manitoba, which is home to the original lands of the Anishinaabeg, Anishiniwak, Dakota Oyate, Dene Sulin, and Nehehowak. We are also located on the beautiful homeland of the Red River Metis. This podcast is brought to you by Youth Troopers for Global Action and the Manitoba Advocate for Children and Youth. You can learn more about us on our sh- on our websites, ytga.com and manitobaadvocate.ca, which you'll find in the show notes. Today's episode focuses on the link between the World Wide Web, the law, and human trafficking of young people. Staff Sergeant Bob Christmas of the Winnipeg Police Service expertly walks us through these important topics, highlighting the critical role of the law and online solutions to end this wicked problem. Bob Christmas won the University of Manitoba Distinguished Dissertation Award for his PhD research on interrupting sex trafficking in Canada. With 35 years of law enforcement experience, Bob writes prolifically on social justice issues. His newest book, a literary fiction novel with DIO Press titled The River of Tears, it explores sex trafficking in Canada. You can learn more about Bob and his work at B Christmas, uh, spelt without a T, so B-C-H-R-I-S-M-A-S dot com. Welcome, Bob, to Inside Human Trafficking in Canada. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here with us. Bob, as we focus on the law and the World Wide Web, as they relate to the human trafficking of young people, two articles of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child stand out to me. Firstly, Article 40, and I quote, you have the right to legal help and fair treatment in the justice system, end quote. And Article 41, and I quote, if there are any laws in Canada that protect you better than the UN rights of the child, you must be protected under the Canadian laws, end quote. With these rights in mind, can you please explain a bit about the work you do related to the law and the World Wide Web and how it aims to end human trafficking? Some huge questions on that. <laughs> um, maybe let me start by contextualizing myself just a little bit. Um, I'm in my 32nd year of policing, but currently I'm not working in this area. In fact, uh, I thought I was had put that uh, piece of my career behind me, but, but when it came time to um, select a topic for my PhD research, uh, my professors all encouraged all of us students to pick something you're passionate about. So looking back on my career, um, I think one of the most impassioned and challenging, and I guess because of that, it was so challenging, it was equally rewarding when we had small successes, was working with missing persons and trying to interrupt sex trafficking with youth. So I played a role in the uh, in the beginning back in the mid-2000s when a lot was happening in Canada around missing persons and counter-exploitation for a majority of people is slavery uh, as it would be defined in the United Nations conventions. So going back to how they define universal human rights and universal um, safety that people should all be entitled to no matter where you live, whether it's Bangladesh or downtown Winnipeg, Really, uh, there's a cosmopolitan principle 
we as the, um, I think we're speaking to a younger audience, so I'll just describe that. Cosmopolitan means universal. The feeling that people, no matter where you live in the world, should have a right to food security, not to be exploited for your labor, not to be sexually exploited by human traffickers for money. Through my research, I took a qualitative approach. I talked to 61 different people from survivors of the sex industry, people who have been trafficked in the sex industry for many years, all the way up to sitting ministers who are involved in making laws around prostitution. By the time I was done my research, oh, by the way, the, those 61 people represented 1,000 years of experience around the sex industry in Manitoba. Mm -hmm. I went, I, I dug deep into Manitoba rather than trying to go across Canada because I was self-funded and basically doing my PhD work in my uh, off time uh, with some concession. I was, I got some support in time from the police service, which I greatly appreciated. But so by the, um, it's a long, long answer to your question, I guess, but by, by the end of my research, I was quite comfortable changing the title of it to uh, initially my, the title was gathering um, people's stories. But by the end of it, I changed the title to human slavery in the sex industry because that's really the vast majority of people who I talked to in Manitoba defined it as slavery and as it would be in the uh, United Nations conventions. Thank you very much, Bob. Um, thinking now about the law and the World Wide Web in particular, can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done in those areas to counter trafficking of, of children and youth in particular? Sure. Actually, the thing that uh, got me involved in that type of work back in the mid-2000s was I've had some great opportunities in my policing career, and uh, I... Uh, I was one of the first in within the first year in one of Canada's first integrated child exploitation units investigating internet-based child exploitation. And one thing that I really learned is just how globalized this issue has become and how global responsibility has become. Really that was a, a core theme in my book on policing that I published in 2013. And I've traveled as far as Hong Kong talking about how uh, uh, responsibility for these social issues and, and investigation has become globalized. So if I have time, I could give you a quick example that I've, that I've referred to. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I was sitting in the uh, ICE unit office one day and a package came in. It was from a uh, small um, Interpol unit in Wiesbaden, Germany. And basically what it was, was, and bear in mind that this was when we were pioneering investigative techniques and how to get at some of these issues with uh, what we, what we called uh, internet based child exploitation, because really child pornography is the uh, exploitation of infants and children for, for, for mm -hmm. bad purposes. <laughs> And so this package came, and it was a, a DVD from this small investigative unit in Wiesbaden, Germany. Um, I said to my sergeant, I'll take that. I'll, I'll see what I can do with it. What it was was a, a CD in which they had been online communicating with people who were trading images of child pornography. And it had, here's what we sent to this person. Here's what 
key sent back. Here's the URL. It's uh, the UR the internet URL is in Winnipeg. So we're sending this to you. So I took that. I got a search warrant for the uh, telephone or the internet service provider information that uh, was associated with that. We did a search warrant on the house and in it we found what was at that time one of the largest collections of child pornography that had been seized in Canada to date. And interestingly, the person that we um, arrested there worked in a bank and he had access to records and he was gathering information from a dozen different women had maps to their homes and um, stories, and he was using them for basically pornography purposes. So we ended up bringing in a special prosecutor to talk about, is this harassment? Well, an element of the uh, crime of harassment is you have to be fear, have fear. But how do you have fear if you don't even know you're being exploited? Just your images have been taken and they're being put out there on the on the internet. So it was very interesting. We, uh, me and my RCMP counterpart had to go around and talk to each of these women and say, this is what we found. This is what we're doing. How does that make you feel? Mm. <laughs> and where they said, uh, I'm afeard of it. I, you know, that's terrifying. And we, uh, we put a case together. It didn't go too far, but that's the kind of pioneering investigative work that we were doing back then. Hmm. So, and, and so yeah. much of this is hidden, right, and invisible, but we know um, reports are showing that this type of thing intersects with trafficking of children yeah. and using young adults, and, and um, it appears to be on the rise uh, from what we can see. Um, one of the things you mentioned is that you were able to spend some time in the United States and learning about some of their models, and I, I know, having known you for years, I'm aware that you were instrumental in implementing a collaborative model here in Manitoba between police and social workers and community organizations yeah. to come alongside of youth who are being sexually exploited and in some cases also having their images circulated illegally online. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why that collaborative approach is so important? Absolutely. Um, so just to finish off that point about the um, that long story that I told about the ICE unit, the point is if we hadn't received that information from Germany, we wouldn't have anything. So we have a responsibility here when we come across it to share with other places. And that responsibility, I feel, also um, crosses into multi-sectoral responsibility for social issues. So a huge theme in my, my first book, I felt it throughout my career, through my experience and, and through my research. Probably the biggest theme in my um, my PhD thesis and the book that flowed from it with the University of Toronto Press was mm -hmm. that um, we all share responsibility for these issues. And I find that uh, from my going back to my master's public administration training, we talked a lot about um, responsibility and public accountability and policy making. And I found that. Um, it's just the nature of business and government to point fingers. So who's responsible for a child's safety and well-being? Uh, sometimes from a policing perspective, they will say um, it's child welfare. Child welfare has the, uh, the responsibility for safety of children. 
child welfare will say, well, there's crime involved, so it's the police. And then everybody's going, well, what about the education system and the health system, which, which are both much, much bigger. So a huge theme in my writing, you know, all the publications I've done and the teaching is about how important collaborative approaches are. And I, and I learned that myself when I was working with uh, exploited youth. So back in the mid-2000s, there was also a will, the deputy minister and the people in the child protection branch. Like, what could we do about exploited youth and runaways who are being exploited and trafficked? And uh, that's actually when we started meeting and thinking about how we could put police officers with social workers. And when we looked more into it, we found that uh, the counter-exploitation unit in Dallas, Texas, was doing cutting-edge work for years. So... My partner, my social work partner at the time, she and I, uh, the government sent us down. We rode with the counter exploitation unit. And the sergeant uh, from there, what they would do is basically track runaways, missing person reports from group homes. And they'd, they'd go, this girl, she's run away from her group home placement or foster placement three times in the last two weeks. Like, what's going on there? And they'd go and pay her a visit. And... Sometimes it would be, uh, you know, throw a Coke can at them or something when they go to see her. <laughs> but by the third visit sometimes, or sometimes something happened in that person's life, and they've started to feel a little bit of trust, and they've met these officers six or eight times, and they they actually call. And, uh, you know, okay, I've had enough, I want some help. Or they'll uh, get picked up for the fourth time and then say, okay, this is the guy that's trafficking me. And that, so that's how they were getting at those investigations. But it's all about trust building with the community and, and being seen as an ally rather than an oppressive arm of government. So collaboration really is the only way I think that we can, rather than saying problems are one, one sector's responsibility. I think the, it's very important to shift that responsibility into the middle where we all share responsibility. Absolutely. I love that point and, and I couldn't agree more that our our geographic borders and our mandate borders should not be informational borders, right? Um, which tends to happen to this day. Um, based on what you just said, what, what else do people need to understand about the trafficking of children, youth, and young adults? Again, as, as it relates to our laws right now and, and the web. Well, I think one of the most important things that was a huge finding in my research is there, there we still have a, a, a huge phenomena of not in my backyard, not my problem, couldn't happen to my child, couldn't happen to me. Um, and that's actually a, a big point that I have with um, some people who argue that, well, it should be fully legalized. It's a challenge because, so how, do the, how does it happen that they wind up being exploited in the sex industry? They don't see it coming. So awareness, education, training. How many doctors in emergency rooms see people who come through who are injured and uh, and don't recognize the signs. I talked to the very, very uh, senior social workers through my research who said, now I realize that back then I was working with exploited girls. I just didn't recognize it. They were coming into the 
back to the group home that I was working in with brand new hundred dollar runners and jewelry and that. And I just didn't think social workers, police officers, um, who sees children on like all most children on a daily basis, school teachers. So there's room for a lot of education training in that area to just raise people's awareness about the signs and how you can intervene if you see it happening. Where a big challenge I see in the system is that we still have a long way to go in making the system responsive, sensitive, and client-centered. Um, we've had famous cases where children are uh, picked up, run away, and then there's a challenge, what do we do with them? So I think that we're making uh, headway and things are a lot better. We now have a huge counter-exploitation unit, the police service, and many, many resources going into it. But I, I, think, I believe we still have a long way to go. Thank you. And so in addition to really debunking that myth that this doesn't happen in our own backyard, what other myths have you come across that listeners may not be aware of when it comes to this issue? I think the um, the main point is uh, people's view of it. Not so much that it's a nuisance and that we don't want to see and it's not part of my life and I don't hold responsibility, but just the, uh, the myth about the belief that people choose that lifestyle. Mm. So the book that I just released, The River of Tears, is about... Um, missing and murdered women in Canada. And there's a story in there about a young girl who goes to a party and um, with no intentions of doing anything, but she gets abducted and basically taken into the sex industry. So um, um, I hadn't heard these terms before, but there's gorillas and Romeos. So those made it into my story. So a gorilla will actually take somebody by force. So a girl might, a story that I've heard, and you know, in my research is uh, you're at a party and next thing you know, you're, for whatever reason, you're taking drugs. And next thing you know, they're saying, you owe me $2,000 now, how are you gonna pay it back? And then by and force. And that's where you get into that slavery piece, right? Cause you have that, that better the use of violence and the lack of uh, an ability to escape that situation, right, in particular, yeah. and you're forced to work against your will. Yeah. And then the other, uh, the Romeos is a whole different class. It's a lot of girls feel that they're doing this and they're entrenched. When I say uh, for the young people listening, entrenched means uh, developing a, a psyche or an ethos around something. Well, the, the, um, the culture around the sex industry is you don't talk to cops, you don't talk to social workers, you work for your boyfriend and you do your thing and you don't draw attention to yourself. Well, that makes it very hard for social workers and police officers to intervene. So when I, way back uh, mid 2000, when I worked in missing persons, all, all my investigators were beat up from head to toe because they were trying to help people that didn't want help, right? Mm. So that's the challenge in these things. 
I think that point is a really important one for listeners and young people in particular, and it speaks to legal pluralism. Probably Alice and Carrie and I were talking about this and the fact that for trafficked children, there are different norms and rules within that sex industry culture that are held by the people that they live with and by them in order to survive. And and so those differ from the, you know our normal laws and the rules we have with our families or at school, and they're in quite a bit of conflict. So you have situations, for example, where um, there are, are youth who are being trafficked and exploited, but are also in turn, in order to survive, exploiting others. And so it gets really complex. Can you tell us a little bit about that piece as well? Yeah, I mean, I don't like to use the, the term brainwashed because it takes away the agency of the person and the, and the will that people have. But really, that's what's going on. And through my research, a lot of people told me um, how they were groomed and how people groom, they, they target people who, for instance, are in group homes and foster placements because they know they've been taken away from their family because there's some issues going on and they're vulnerable. So they pick on those people. And that's where the internet piece comes on, where if a girl's posting and talking on the internet, predators, they, uh, they know what to look for. And this person's lonely, you know? So they, they'll target people like that and groom them. They'll show up mysteriously where they are and, hey, I'll be your friend. I'll buy you things. I'll do things for you. Oh, no, this, uh, I owe money all of a sudden to, to this, these drug dealers. Can you, I need you to do me a favor and perform sex to get me out of this trouble. And because they love them, you know, sometimes that's the way it goes. And so that trauma bonding piece that, that originates because of that that need for belonging and acceptance and what is perceived as love, ironically, from the very person that is harming them, is often what's occurring, right? So that's really important for folks to understand. In addition to what you've shared, what lessons have you learned about how we can move forward in a good way? So I think that a lot of this comes down to poverty and the lack of opportunity, educational opportunities, which leads to employment opportunities. Um, but I always like to put a cautionary note on that because all of our most successful people in the universe have come from challenging backgrounds. Like if you think about it, like how could you really achieve anything in life if you haven't had any challenges and things to overcome in order to learn how to be resilient. So, but there have been longitudinal studies that have looked at communities over 40 years. And unfortunately, the vast majority of us will wind up living and dying in the same socioeconomic class that we're born into. But what you do with that is is another thing, and so I don't I don't like to say poverty equates to failure. Poverty equates to success because it gives people the opportunity to overcome things. But I think that we need to reduce poverty, improve educational completion. For instance, there's uh, Indigenous people across Canada and in Manitoba still have a relatively low educational completion rate. We need to do something about that. We need to do something about standards of living, getting back to this cosmopolitan principle. You know, um, if you live in a reserve where there's very little uh, resources and opportunity, maybe not even 
clean drinking water. Um, we one of the things that I learned in my um, research was about the trafficking routes between the north and the south and the urban centers. So traffickers will show up and in a rural community and introduce themselves to a young girl who's coming of age that, you know, 14, 15 ish to potentially be engaged in the sex industry and say, Hey, I know that if you want to finish your grade 12 next year, you're going to have to come into Winnipeg or Thompson. And, um, when you come there, look me up, I'll be your friend. And we all know how that story ends for a lot of people. So we need to help people build resilience, build awareness, and build strength. What key message do you want listeners to take away from this conversation today? What key message would I like everyone to take away? That this is everyone's problem. Social issues are not someone else's problem. They're everyone's responsibility and everyone's problem. And therefore, we all have a role that we can play in solving them. And when all of society rallies around serious issues like human trafficking and sexual exploitation, we can do away with it. We can change it. What keeps you motivated to do this difficult work? Reflecting back on my my whole career and things I've done, I uh, I think that if I was Indigenous, I'd be in the Bear Clan. You know, I did. I worked in the correctional system. I was a sheriff for five years, then I was a soldier for five years, and then thirty-two years in policing. And then I uh, chose for my my research for my PhD to study human trafficking and sexual exploitation. So I, I guess I. I just have a feel and need to do what I can to contribute to raising awareness and solving these issues. Um, publication has been a, something that I've really felt some satisfaction from because I feel like if I could, was to get smoked by a car next week, uh, at least I've left something that might contribute to the public discourse in the future, maybe way, way in the future. That's a wonderful thought, and I think the more that we all contribute to that discussion and to the solutions around these issues, then um, the more they will disappear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned that you have seen positive incremental change over time. What gives you hope for the future? Well, I think people are generally good, and we want to see the right thing. Some of the social issues that we grapple with, you know, particularly in policing and social work, we're exposed to things that we're exposed to things so that other people don't have to be uh, so that other people can work as an accountant or whatever, and they don't have to be completely involved in these things. So I think that what gives me hope is that just seeing all the progress that we've made and the uh, the raised social consciousness and the feeling about what's right and wrong, that cosmopolitan principle about what basic human rights should be everywhere in the world. I've traveled the world, uh, I've traveled on a few con- continents and 
and found that um, everyone should travel a little bit when they can just to see how people live and the standards that we have in a place like Canada. Um, so if we in Canada can't do away or do something about some of these darker underlying problems, then um, what hope do they have in some other places? So I think we're leading, we have a, a, the opportunity to be a beacon for the rest of the world. And, and I believe that's why the Canadian Museum for Human Rights ended up being established in Winnipeg. It's the only uh, national museum outside of the National Capital Region it was established in Winnipeg because some people in Winnipeg had a vision about Winnipeg being a center for human rights. And uh, I like to be part of that in my own small way, any way I can. Thank you so much for the part you've played. Um, and I think you're being quite humble. You've played a really critical role here in, in moving things forward in a good way. We've now reached the point uh, right now in our conversation where I am going to share some questions that we, we received from youth on behalf of Youth for You. And the first one is, and I quote, how has the pandemic impacted human trafficking and cult? You know, um, I don't know. I think that's probably something that would be very interesting to research. But I would speculate that it has driven a lot of people online more. And therefore, that aspect of vulnerability is probably being exploited by people more. Um, people who have been laid off from their jobs and, and spending more time just locked up at home online probably are being exposed to a lot of things that they weren't prior to the COVID. And then the other thing is uh, it's both a good and a bad thing. I think that a lot of people have had their work and their schooling and lives disrupted by the COVID. And it's caused us, all of us, to reflect on what we want to do with our lives and the way the world should be. So that's why a lot of uh, businesses are having a hard time getting people to come back to work because I think people have been sick or they've been off and they've thought, well, why am I doing that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so I myself and nine people in my family had COVID. And actually, the book that I uh, released was, it started with me quarantined in my office at home and, I, uh, I wasn't sure I was going to make it out of there on a few days, but so I, mm. I started writing that. I thought, well, here's a message that I want to leave. And so I'm really happy with the way it, it came out in the end. Wow, what a wonderful, positive, you know, piece from COVID that's come out of it. And absolutely, I think we all have cause to step back and do some introspection about what we want to do and what legacies we leave behind. Okay, and our final question for my here is, and I quote, if communication applications like WhatsApp help traffickers in their actions, what can be done to change this? End quote. Well, enforcement, um, cooperation from the service providers, which sometimes the justice system demands or asks for and gets uh, to varying degrees. Education, awareness, and caution. Try and be um, just careful about who you let into your life. Don't be paranoid. 
we still have to, we all need love and companionship and friendship and that, but be careful about who you associate with. And, and uh, it always, it, it's always a good thing if you're connecting with someone online, if you've met them in person. Thank you so very much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today, Bob. Thank you. That was an interesting conversation with Bob Christmas today. If you liked what you heard, please remember to follow Inside Human Trafficking in Canada on your favorite podcasting platforms so that you don't miss a podcast. We'd also love if you left a great review for our podcast, which will help other people find it online. Inside Human Trafficking in Canada is brought to you by Youth Troopers for Global Action and the Manitoba Advocate for Children and Youth. You can learn more about both of our organizations on our websites, which you can find in the show notes. Thank you again to today's guest, Dr. Bob Cosman, Staff Sergeant of the Winnipeg Police. Special thanks also go to Profix Software Inc. for providing financial support to YTTA to develop this podcast series, to our producers, Libin Mohammed, Anne-Marie Goet-Stevenson, and Anthula Borolias from YTTA, and Jessica Vitello-Rivansky from Macy, to Darshan Dorka from Next Stanza for audio mixing, and to Daniel Chavez from Cisse Puede Productions for our studio setup in Winnipeg. If you want to find us on social media, both YTJ and Macy are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find our handles in the show notes. We'll be using the hashtag Inside Human Trafficking to share podcast information online, so feel free to follow that hashtag as well and join the conversation. We'd love to hear what you think of the podcast, and if you have any questions about human trafficking that you'd like us to ask future guests. You can also follow Bob and find his research, including his newest book, The River of Tears, at B christmas.com b-c-h-r-i-s-m-a-s.com where you can also find social media information i am dr carly sapoznik evans thank you for listening i'll be back again next week with another episode of inside human trafficking in canada together we will get educated to stop exploitation <laughs>